0: Before we get into it, I need to remind you that the Football Index Podcast is supported by footballindextrader.co.uk, the best site for in-depth scouting and trading strategy. For the first time, you can now check out a free tour of the members' content before you sign up. Just go to the homepage and click on the Take the Tour button to see a whole month of player scouting from this season and some sample member articles too. As an exclusive offer for podcast listeners, you can give the site a try with a 25% discount on your first month with Fig. Twenty-five. That's over on footballindextrader.co.uk. Hello and welcome back to the Football Index Podcast episode 140. I've just come off the bat of doing a great live commentary alongside Sporting Panda on the Manchester City Arsenal game. Alongside the Hot Mic app, which was super fun. Thanks for everyone that got involved in that. Even though Arsenal got absolutely trounced, I enjoyed it. Well, I enjoyed it as much as I physically could. Today, I'm joined by two returners. I mean, the, the guys who hold the record for the most downloaded fig cast in history today, including all the ones with Adam Cole and ASP and Don, etc. The Don and Panda heavyweight bout. That three-hour bonanza that we did has been the most downloaded in history. So fair play to all you guys for sticking that one out. First up, Sam Friedman, how are you doing?
1: I'm good, thank you. Enjoyed having the football back.
0: Yeah, late in the night. Sorry for keeping you up so long, but I'm hoping this is going to be a fun chat. Why don't you give people a little bit of background about yourself before we get into it, for people that don't know? Sure.
1: I run a charity, so my day-to-day life has absolutely nothing to do with football, but I've been on Football Index for the last couple of years, joined in the summer of 2018 and been fairly obsessed with it more or less since I joined. This is my fifth time on the pods. Wow. I've done a few of these. I think my main interest has been the kind of behavioral economics aspects of the index, I think, as well as just a great fun thing to do and rekindling my interest in football. It's also just been so fascinating to watch the product evolve and how people have reacted to different changes and what that tells us about how people think and behave.
0: Mm, Well, I mean, I'm sure you're going to be frazzling some brains with some of that behavioral psychology stuff at some point during the show, including mine. Speaking of psychology, we are joined by, I believe, a psychologist in F.I. Sigmund Freund, who is, uh, would you call yourself slightly Marmite of the F.I. community?
2: Maybe. I mean, I love Marmite, so...
0: I hate it. Maybe Marmite was harsh.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I find it really interesting to talk about value and where I think value lies in the index and Yeah, some people really like that sort of talk and and some people don't, I guess. (laughs) Do
0: you want to tell people a little bit more about yourself?
2: Sure. So I'm a psychologist. I used to work mainly in elite sport around development and performance, then shifted over to now work in business and education, been on the index for about 18 months. I think it's an incredible platform, really enjoying it still just as much as I, I have since I joined.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your introduction, gentlemen. Before we get into it, I need to remind you guys of my Patreon. You know, started the Patreon recently, which is going really well. There's, I think, 45 people signed up now, which I'm very grateful for. Everyone on the Discord really enjoying themselves as well. There's £3, £5, £8 and £12 tiers, all with different great perks. So do check that out. VAT is not including in the price, which is pretty annoying considering there are a lot of European-based Patreon content creators that I think had similar complaints. But if you guys want some of the best in-depth, kind of behind-the-scenes, premium content on Football Index around, then head over to patreon.com forward slash FIGuide for more information and join a growing community at the Fig Patreon. First up, Fi Gardener. without sounding too negative, what was the point in that bloody survey? Surely 90% of traders should have had the same answers.
2: Yeah, I kind of agree a bit in the sense of it didn't feel like the most focused and targeted survey. I guess on one hand, it's nice to know that they want people's opinions. I think the danger is sometimes if it's so vague or so open, either you get everyone saying the same thing or you just don't get any real clear point -point answers. So, yeah, I think I actually agree with Garden. I didn't find it the most worthwhile activity, but I guess it's nice for people to ask your opinion.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably just a bit of security so when they make the changes, they can say, look, you asked for them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was just about to say the same kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's much more to it than that. I don't think it'll change what they do. I think it's just security.
0: Uh, Yeah, I think it might just be a box-ticking exercise. So kind of three yeses to agree with FI Gardner, who keeps supplying us with, as the summer is rolling in, some fantastic photos. Joe Felix here. I've got a question for all three of you. What part of trading in FI do you enjoy more, the analysis of various data sources or the football itself? Sigma, why don't you go first?
2: I think for me, I love football. It's just my life, my hobbies. used to be my work for a long time. It's not why I love FI in the sense of I don't personally need to gamble on football to enjoy football more. Like it's always nice having the validation of my opinion on football being confirmed with making money. But I think the really interesting thing for me on FI is it's not a question of who is the best player. Like Mm -hmm. We're not just trying to buy brilliant players. You're trying to work out who's the best value or which player you think you can make the most money on either short-term or long-term. So for me, I think I do like the data analysis stuff just because I love football so much already. FI doesn't necessarily add to my love of football, (laughs) but it's just this beautiful blend of the two. That'll probably be it for me.
1: Similarly, I'd say they're both an important element for me. I think probably I'm a bit more mercenary. It does make football a lot more interesting to me when I've got some money resting on it, even if it's only a little bit. And it certainly made me watch a lot more European football, which I never Mm. used before, which I'm grateful for it doing. But yeah, I mean, I love talking about it. I love doing analysis. It's the whole package the build-up during the day that makes it such a great product, whereas a normal bet is just a one-off thing you do and then might increase your pleasure in the game.
0: Yeah, I think for me it's, again, perfect blend of the two, as you mentioned, Sigmund, but I do, as someone who's such an avid football fanatic, I do really enjoy the kind of watching a Dortmund game or a PSG game and having a player in those teams or other European teams and watching it with the same kind of grip that you'd have when you watch a team that has some of your fancy football players, but with actual money involved, it's just that wonderful blend of those two. And then when you add the kind of thinking about value of players, how players' prices are driven, and then the kind of more analytical side with the actual data, it's just this absolutely amazing concussion that FI have somehow created for this wonderful product. So I think it's it's just doing wonderfully at the moment, and I think it's just going to go on from strength to strength. Got a question here from Rob Cheesewright. Great. Guess, question one, are you going for a new pod length record?
1: Given it's 20 to 11 at night, I really hope not, (laughs) (laughs) as I have to work tomorrow.
0: Second that, otherwise it'll be a a tiresome day tomorrow.
2: Yeah, same for me. I think my two-year-old toddler would almost certainly mean that I can't be doing a three-hour podcast tonight and parent tomorrow. So maybe a slightly abridged version.
0: Maybe not calm, very difficult is probably the word.
2: Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, that's true. (laughs)
0: And then question two, own up to the worst and or funniest psychological thinking traps you found yourself fall into on Football Index, please.
1: I don't think I fall into surprising ones. I think I fall into the same ones that everyone else falls into, or at least have to try very hard to avoid them. FOMO is a very powerful thing. And I've certainly fallen for that enough times while I've been on the product. I think less so than I used to. You mentioned in my bio, in the tweet for this, I have FOMO bought Ross Barkley twice, which has to be one of the most stupid things anyone's ever done. <laughs> like I made the mistake once. This is a guy who constantly flatters to deceive, I made the mistake once and then managed to finally get rid of him and then promptly did exactly the same thing all over again. So I still beat myself up about that.
2: I guess for me, I think especially when I first joined, I think I assumed everyone and especially on social media knew more, like spoke with such authority that they must be right. So you kind of fall into this, groupthink sort of bandwagon effect of who counts as a good FI player or not. And there's some players I look back and I think I certainly fancied them to do very well over the coming months and years and thought they were underpriced, but just kind of doubted myself a bit at the beginning, going, if I'm one of the few people who thinks this, then chances are I'm wrong. It's not the group that's wrong, it's I'm wrong. So I think kind of trusting my own research and not following onto sort of bandwagon and groupthink stuff. Probably a bit. I think also to me, quite a while, like a good six months to kind of get over sort of this recency bias of chasing risers or buying players after they've done something good when that something good might be quite random or unlikely again. So you always see it with really cheap players who win PB and they probably should win PB once a year. But then it doesn't really make too much sense if nothing's changed, if it was quite random to then buy them again straight after they've done that. But you kind of go oh, well, if they've done it last weekend, they might be able to do Mm. it next weekend. And it takes a bit of while, I think, to kind of always get comfortable with either missing risers or not chasing last week's risers. And that takes quite a bit of time, I think, to kind of get out of that habit.
0: Yeah, I think the FOMO aspect that you mentioned, Sam, is something that, I don't know, like when you see a rise and it's like your brain just stops working and your fingers start buying. It's a strange phenomenon, but like your brain just stops thinking rationally. It's really interesting, especially from a football index standpoint. But FI Pell, I think I've pronounced that correctly this time. How do you both rate your own ability to trade based on your football knowledge? Do you find yourself relying on your understanding of how others behave to make trades?
2: I find the football knowledge thing interesting because you hear this a lot about do they pass the eye test There's always kind of this phrase that people come up with. And I think the key to if you're going to trade off your football knowledge is to almost know and accept what you don't know. And so I think a lot of people suffer from overconfidence that we all think our opinion on a footballer is right. And I had it described once to me how the eye test is generally rubbish because usually it's, you can't trust your eyes or you're doing the wrong test. So we tend to distort our memory. It kind of confirms our initial opinion a lot of the time. And in terms of knowing what to look for, the interesting thing about football is each player on average is only on the ball for like two or three minutes a match. So they spend the vast majority of the match not on the ball. So actually what matters and what the hardest part, especially in elite football, is movement and positioning. But yet you often can't see that when you're watching on TV because of quite tight camera angles. So basically, it's a better version of YouTube highlights, what you see on TV, <laughs> essentially. We can't trust our memory sometimes and we don't know what we're looking for. I remember once having a discussion with someone around, I really like this player. I said he closes down really well. And this coach once explained to me, he asked me why I thought the player closes other players down one. And I said, well, you know, he charges down at really high intensity. And he was saying, yeah, but he charges down in a straight line, which doesn't cut off a good pass. So actually, when you're a striker to close a defender down, you almost want to run on a curve to block out the pass to a fullback. I had no idea about that. But yet, what I was looking for wasn't actually the right things to judge that ability. So it's really hard, I think, to say with any certainty, I've seen this player once or twice or how many times and I know he's going to make it or I know he's going to be brilliant. I think you can do it with the outliers who are just so far apart. But for the most, it's really hard, I think, to trust what you're seeing, especially if it's on a TV and if you're emotional about it, which we all are with our trades because there's money involved. Sam, over to you.
1: I mean, I don't consider myself to have particularly strong football knowledge relative to a lot of other people on the platform. I mean, I watch a fair amount. I think I've watched a lot more since being on. I have a fairly good idea of what's going on, but I don't sort of think, Oh, I've spotted a gem that everyone else has missed on the pitch. I tend to look at what other traders and other people I kind of trust in terms of sort of football knowledge around sort of which players to keep an eye on and then use a lot of data and a lot of thinking about how the platform actually works really rather than buy on the basis of a player I've seen. I very rarely buy and play. and I very rarely buy because I think I've seen somebody, if ever. It's just not how I
0: trade. Awesome. We'll move on to the next question here from FI Headhunter. What were your key takeaways from FIG's interview with Adam and Akash? And did it leave you more or less confident about the future of the product? That's a contentious question.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe I go first on this one. Firstly, I think it's great that they keep doing your pod that they do their own stuff that they do q a's i mean i think the last twitter q a was a little misjudged but broadly speaking i think it's really good that they talk about the product i'd much rather they keep talking about it even if they don't always have absolute clarity than sort of shutting up and never telling us what they're thinking because it generally gives me a lot more confidence to have a bit of insight into what's going on in their heads i also hadn't heard a cash before and i and i was So I was really impressed. I thought he had some really interesting ideas, seemed very impressive and to know what he was talking about. And I think one of the things I took from the interview was the level of ambition, which I think is something I've talked about before, I think is incredibly important that when you have a moment like this with a product lots of people like, it's still pretty early stage that you really push hard now. Because if you let it drift too long, you risk a competitor coming along or someone else coming up with an idea that overtakes you. So I like the level of ambition. I like the desire to sort of grow times 10 in two years to get an NASDAQ to happen You know, before the new season. The only slight niggle, I guess, I had two slight niggles. The first is I think there was a bit of thinking out loud, which made me sort of think how much have they actually really thought about their own product. There were just a few moments where you're thinking, it was almost like they'd never talked about it and then they were just sort of saying it on air. And he was thought, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like, I don't really understand why you'd freeze certain players. That was one of the sort of things that, that came up. Just sort of seemed to be saying it in the spur of the moment. And the other thing is just whether they're just a little bit too focused on the technology as being the path to the sort of big big growth. It's certainly a big part of it. I've always said it's a big part of it. But you know, you can't leave the intrinsic value of players behind. They're not going to tell us now what the div increase is going to be, but I do worry they're not thinking enough about the underlying value of players as well as the technology to enable the liquidity and platform to flow. So long answer, but on the whole I was I was encouraged. Really like the ambition. Really like the fact they keep talking to us as customers. Just a couple of little niggles.
2: Yeah, I really liked it. I was impressed by how quickly they've kind of put EMI together, which kind of came out, I think, in the pod. And generally, I thought their priorities were quite similar to what I would want them to be in terms of, let's get sell orders sorted. Let's get NASDAQ where we can. And I have to say, I mean, it's incredible when you look back on how they've handled the whole last few months. I remember being fairly worried I mean, when you look at what's happening in the outside world, like we're going to enter in what's probably going to be a fairly deep recession, is my guess. And in the last two months during a worldwide pandemic, most people's port has gone up anywhere up to like 25% during the last few months. And that's largely been how FI has handled it. So I think they deserve a lot of credit for the last few months. I think it's great what Sam says, that they want to engage and they come on and they answer questions. I understand at times why they tend to be a bit vague because we know It's easy to misinterpret or for people to jump on a throwaway sentence and then stake Mm. thousands of pounds on that. So it's a really tricky line, I thought. But yeah, I'd much rather them come on the pod and answer where they can as opposed to not doing that. So I thought it was really, really encouraging.
1: I just completely second the point about the way they dealt with the pandemic. I think they did incredibly well. You know, There was a lot of nervousness at the beginning, the way they managed the bonuses at the beginning of that period to keep money in. I think it was absolutely the right decision to turn off IS when they did, but to find ways to keep money coming in despite doing that. You know, I think they did a brilliant
2: job at managing that. What did you think, Fig? Your pod.
0: What did I think? Isn't that one of your cheat cards, is it, Sigmund? No, surely not. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I think, for me, I've always been a quite a big picture guy. And I know that if Football and next are going to be a multi-billion pound, I think I put it in a Q&A yesterday, a multi-billion pound alternative asset market, then we are, say, at £120 million into that. It's a very small percentage into that journey. And if we have hiccups at even 10%, which is like £500 then it's going to be part of that journey to get to what is now, what will become, in my opinion, or hopefully, one of the most revolutionary products, especially in sports gambling, but potentially in kind of alternative markets in general. And some of the big picture things that they discuss, such as the matching engines... Stage two, three and four NASDAQ integration, some of the mature type of thinking that Adam, I think talked about in terms of the insurance products, kind of compliance and how that's become like a bigger priority for FI, which is obviously really important, especially in this industry. Those all pointed to me that FI are trying to set the foundation now to basically create something that is actually going to be very sustainable and very much long term because you can't scale something where that many thousand people trying to get on Jude Bellingham and it crashes. You can't scale when PB scores don't work all the time, which is probably an issue that's popped up a couple of times here and there since COVID has popped back in, post-COVID, since football has come back. And I think that FI are going to have to deal with these issues one thing at a time and meet them head on. I think the stuff about kind of uncertainty in trading, I don't really think they got that, but it's kind of hard to get when you're not a trader. And I think it kind of spoke to slightly having that disconnect with traders in general. And I don't know if surveys actually resonate that much with them or with us, for that matter of fact, because I don't think we can kind of share everything with 14 questions. And I think having that kind of, you know, those trader groups that they had before that we're talking about, those kind of things, and, and then doing more market research is a lot better to try and understand what your customers actually want, because this isn't the kind of way of doing it. But anyway... We've we rambled more on that than we should. We've got a question here from Football Index Tactics or Tactics Knicks. So and no, it's a very long one. Look forward to this beating the previous longest ever episode set by these two. Hopefully it won't. Question for Freund. If Man United has Sancho, Rashford, Bruno, Pogba, Greenwood in the same team, can they all maintain top 10 to 15 prices? With 24 months or so of solid football and MB often reflecting on pitch actions and one-place media on match days, is it really feasible that they all win enough MB to maintain these prices? And on PB, we see with other teams, X will drop if he moves and players with Neymar, for example. Why does that not seemingly apply to Man United? More top-level players who share the ball around creates lower peaks for all. Yet with United, we see people say this will increase price. Is it just the case that this is community-led narrative because by nature, Of them being top 10 to 15 players on the index, there are more holders and it's in more of the community's interest to display this as a benefit to their hold rather than a negative.
2: That is a good question. (laughs) Fair play. Yeah. So like Nick's stuff, it's a good question. I love, I should just mention, love his threads on Twitter. If anyone doesn't follow him, I think they definitely should because they definitely helped me learn a bit more about kind of football and the index. His question basically comes down to two things that are both quite subjective. The first for me is how many divs. Like what yield of their price do you think they're going to win next season? And then what percentage do they need to win to maintain or increase their price? And both are quite subjective. The challenge is, I don't think you should compare players now, like when you're talking about their future price, their price now almost isn't the important part because what their price is now might not be rational or logic or accurate. So I think several of the players that he mentioned there are underpriced now. So therefore, I think lots of them can maintain or increase their price because as the market gets smarter, you'd expect their price to actually reflect their value more. And so we look at some of those players. Before I go through each of the players, I guess we should also add Man United are the biggest club in the world. They're the most talked about. They're a reason that they were on TV for 100 FA Cup games in a row. And this is in the last few years, we should add, with Man United not being very dominant. So I generally believe if we see a dominant Man United, their media attraction is going to go through the roof as it currently stands on Football Index. And if we go through those players, like what percentage do Greenwood need next season to maintain his price in terms of yield? For me, given that he's, what, 18 or 19? If he wins 5% of his yield, he'll probably be doing better than most of his peers at that age. Likewise, for me, I'm happy to buy Rashford, given that he's only 22. If he's returning 10%, I think that's a good reflection for him. Likewise, I think Bruno might win up to, let's say, 15% next year, which means he should definitely go up in price because that would be far better than most of his age group. So I think there is plenty to go around. I think the Man United media only gets bigger if they improve. And I think the key thing is not to benchmark their current price. It's not to say if Rashford's 8 and Bruno's 10, then for one to go up, the other comes down. Like short term, that might happen when people scramble to get on the trade. But long term, I suspect it means more money comes out of less intrinsically valuable players and into the ones who are representing good value. And if the market feels that the returns and the yields of Rashford and Bruno, and if you sign Sancho and Pogba, are worth it, I think they'll be judged on each individual case, not compared to each other. I think they'll be compared to the rest of the index.
0: Yeah, I think the other thing is, you know, I think you mentioned it earlier, how good do you think some of these players going to United will be? And also, are all of them that are there right now, will they stay? Will Pogba stay? Yeah. Will Greenwood actually break in to the team and like play 35 games in the next two seasons? Start 35 games in the next two seasons? Like These are all subjective things that people have to kind of work out for themselves. Sam, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this.
1: There's so many variables, it's impossible to know. I don't, but I'd be quite happy to own all of those players right now and then make decisions based on what happens in terms of where they go, how often they're playing and how well United team do. I mean, I'm, quite, I'm not a United fan, but I'm quite optimistic as a holder of some of those players that they are going to have a really good end of season, given that they've got quite a nice run of games. But over the next one, two seasons, there's just too many variables to know.
2: And I think it's quite good to talk about specifics because sometimes it gets frustrating talking quite vague terms. So If you go through it and you go, Rashford is now legitimately one of the strongest media holds probably on the platform in the next year to two years, mm-hmm. given what we've seen in the last few months. Even before this campaign, we saw his like, his social media has tripled in a year. So like, he's clearly an emerging media player and his PB game gets better. I'm convinced next year that Bruno is one of the highest PB performing players on the platform. So I expect him to lose some media, but I think he gains more than most people think in PB. Sancho, if he goes, how much media do we think a £100 million 20-year-old English player is going to get at the world's biggest club? Like, I think there's loads to go around, especially if they're performing.
0: I'm in the camp that maybe there's not so much to go around, as in they might all be not overpriced at the same time, but there might have to be corrections for some of them. But in the case of Jaden Sancho, what you've got to do, I think, is ask yourself the questions, maybe flip it on its head, Nick, in this perspective. Like, what situations have to happen for Sancho to yield X for him to be worth Y, if that makes sense? So is that Pog believing Sancho starting every game? How much media do you think he has to win? How would he win that media? Is it his first goal, winning goals, a nutmeg or whatever, an interview, etc.? He's becoming like more and more of a media presence. And I think flipping it on its head that way has sometimes helped me identify whether I think a player can kind of maintain that. With Bruno, I think when he first came over from Lisbon to United, it was very, very hard because a lot of people hadn't watched him that much. So it was a lot harder for people to kind of make a decision with those kind of questions, asking the questions about Bruno. But with Sancho, most people have seen him. Most people know what he's about. Most people have seen his dividend power, even across the double media dividend period that we had during COVID, people have to make those adjustment calls for themselves, don't they?
1: Yeah, but ultimately media is also about performance. With any player, they can go for a period without performing and get media. But eventually, Alexis Sanchez being an example, if your form falls off a cliff and you just don't do anything, your media will dry up. So you can't guarantee these things. But as I say, right now, I'd be comfortable holding all of them. I think they're all in very different positions, places, and all have very different narratives and stories to run over the next year that will keep their price at a good level.
2: It's interesting because we should probably talk about Bruno, because he's one of the biggest stories of the season on the index, right? People were very bad for the most part on judging Bruno. Now, admittedly, we had a lot of people, myself included, hadn't seen that much of him play. But what was interesting is he was written off early after by some quarters off to the first game that he played for Man United. And there were lots of stories about, do you always sell on the transfer? Was like one of these unwritten rules. Whereas I think it depends on the club and it depends on the player. But I think with a club like United, if you can demonstrate good PB and good MB, I think a lot of players rise and continue to. I know some don't, but like the high quality ones, I'm assuming Sancho, if he does go, I see no reason why he wouldn't be in that category.
1: Mm.
0: We'll move on to a question from FBI Trader. Do you feel a lot of potential additional liquidity is reduced due to some traders feeling a lack of short-term trading punting opportunities, especially at the lower end? Can you go into some of the biases that are at play, fear to exit a trade, unable to change strategy to suit the matching engine, etc.?
1: Yeah, the matching engine has had a huge impact on the way that people are valuing players which I think is broadly a very good thing because I think it means they're having to value players much more honestly in terms of their real value rather than flipping someone because you know you've got the football index providing IS as a backup if you mess up. That backup isn't there anymore. If you mess up on a trade, you could be holding those shares for three years in the extremis. Certainly, you could find yourself sitting on them for quite a long time or having to sell at a very reduced price. So it has increased the risk around making bad trades, which means that people have to think more about real value. I think that's a very good thing. Mm. I don't think there's so much bias here as people having to be more realistic about the moves they make. And I think it's also exposed some underlying issues with the dividend structure, which at the moment, for good reasons, strongly, strongly favors the top end really sort of strongly favors the top 10 or 20 players who get dividends. So you've seen a sort of shift of money up into that kind of premium top end and a justified reluctance to trade down the bottom of the market where you could find yourself very exposed. I think there's a couple of things that FI can do to counter that because I don't think it's the situation they want long term because if you're restricting the market to a smaller group of players, or the bulk of the market to a smaller group of players, you're restricting the potential size and scale of the platform. I think Adam said on your last pod that they were looking at ways when the NASDAQ integration happens to offer a lot more kind of managed liquidity at the lower end, which would be part of that. And I don't think it's ever going to be as risk-free as it was when they were just providing a sort of standardized IS price. But I do think the other thing, we may talk about this more later on, but I do think they also need to look at the dividend structure and how they can spread out some winnings a little bit more so that you decrease the risk a bit at the bottom end and make people feel more comfortable about trading down there again.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that often gets overlooked, because there has been some grabbles about lack of liquidity and especially at the lower end of the market. The lower end of the market, A, I think is heavily overpriced for a long time. One of the weird quirks of FI is that the most expensive players on the platform generally offer the best value. And so that's often quite a weird thing to get your head around, how more expensive can offer better value. But it clearly does. Like the ratios are still off. And I don't think the lack of liquidity is just down to the shift to matching engine because we still have IS. We still have the ability to cash out our bets. I think a lot of the lack of liquidity down there is there's been no football on. Mm. Why would people be buying and selling loads of different 30p players when those 30p players are priced to do something once a season.
0: Yeah, what could FI do to incentivize that?
2: But I don't understand why they should, because I kind of made a flippant comment the other day, but it's like saying Ladbrokes need to do more to advertise their 10,000 to one shot. That is the odds, that is the bet. You either buy it or you don't. It's a three-year hold. There's still this cash-out option, and anyone looking to sell and complaining about the spreads or the lack of liquidity there, I'd be curious to know how many 4TP players they're buying. Mm. And if they're not, then why should anyone else?
0: I also don't really understand this notion that because the instant sell price changes, the value of the player changes.
2: Oh, it's nonsense. I sometimes wonder if I'm going crazy, Like because (laughs) I wonder what people think the numbers next to players' names mean. They're not just pretty hieroglyphics. (laughs) What those numbers on a basic level mean is, as a collective market this is the number that we think the player will return this amount of dividends in their life. That's at a basic level what that number means. And you can obviously trade in and out of those players as much as you want. But if that number's not higher, then it's not the fault of FI. Mm. Especially like the market now sets the spreads. So it's not just like FI have arbitrary said, this is the 10% spread on the player. Yeah. If your player has a 30 or 40% spread on him, that's because 50,000 other traders have collectively averaged out said this is what we think that player is now worth mm. and just because you've bought something more than the community thinks you should have it's not up to FI to bail that out
0: mm. I totally agree I don't know like people keep saying like the value of those bets have changed they haven't changed if you buy Neymar like people who are buying Sancho even though you couldn't instant sell and the spread was 50% right when covid was kind of at its peak and FI quote-unquote, propped up the market. People were buying him at £10, even though they couldn't sell. So let's think about that. People were buying players, even though you couldn't sell. And now people are talking about the value changing when we're buying players that have bad spreads, but you can't sell. Surely, buying players where you can also sell them in the near or long future is better than the situation that we were three months ago. We're buying players that we knew we couldn't sell for a while until FI turned the taps on.
2: There's certain moments that kind of really stand out for me in my mind or like they're good like learning moments about the market. And I remember when IS was switched off, Ben Foster was top of media for one of those days. Now you're looking at, I don't know his exact age, what, 36-year-old goalkeeper? And there was money going into him at whatever it was, 20 or 30p with no IS. And people were hungry enough for that trade that they were willing to gamble. And I think if you're willing to put money into players like that, gallo was similar yeah. when the China thing was kind of not looking clear. If people are willing to go in and put that bet on, then that's the bet they're making. I always say the first bet that you make on Football Index is how many divs you think that player will win. And the secondary bet is, can I then sell that player on to someone else? And if you get the two the wrong way round, if you only buy a player, think about what you can sell him on to someone else. If that's your main focus... That is a high risk but high reward strategy. Mm. But then you have to be willing to have that risk in order to get the better reward. And that's what these sort of players represent is IS hasn't changed the value of the bet at all. It might change, you know, the level of risk associated with it, but that risk was always there. You just perhaps didn't realise it, I think.
1: Well that's the point. They covered up the risk by having a IS price was usually as lowish spread. That was unjustified. It was nice of them to give us that, but it wasn't a reflection of the value, which I think did mean that part of the market did get overvalued because there was much less risk than was justified. I'm less worried about that bit of the market, the kind of 20, 30 P players, you know, people buy them at their own risk and they're not spending that much money on them either. I'm more worried about higher up in the market, your players that sort of do challenge for dividends occasionally or are quite promising youth, but where it's still reasonably risky, but they're kind of one to two pounds. It's that bit of the market where I think if you don't change the dividend structure eventually, you're going to have some problems because it's just going to restrict the growth of the market overall. If the top 20 players are so dominant in hoovering up all the money, given the nature of a kind of matching market, that's my nervousness.
2: For what it's worth, I think there are some players at the top end of the market in terms of price who are terribly priced. I think they're way overpriced. And the spread on some of these guys is less than 1%. So it does work both ways in terms of getting people out of jail, as it were, because I can't remember, well, certainly not in my lifetime, have I seen a less than a 1% spread on a player when FI set the spreads. So on some players it's harsh, but on some players it's overly generous because that's what the market has decided they think it should be.
0: And people need to realise that these instant sale prices are in this small snapshot in time, aren't they? It's not like if someone has a 50% spread, that's not going to be their spread forever. It could get lower, it could get higher, but it's not going to be that right there forever. So a lot of people have said like, oh yeah, FI have swept the rug from under my feet. You used to be able to make money from buying shit players and knowing you could instant sell them. It's like, well, come on, you knew what you were buying into at some point at that rate. If you were knew you were buying shit and wanting to sell shit back to FI or to someone else, then you're stuck with those shit bets. And even then, as you mentioned, the Ben Foster thing, right? That instant sell price, whether there's one there or not right now, is going to change up and down between now and the next three years. So you're going to have an opportunity to cash out your bet and trade out for some portion of that shit bet that you've got.
2: Yeah, and like context is everything. So bear in mind, we mentioned earlier, like we're coming off the back of this pandemic, football being off, IS was turned off for a while. So there was definitely some people who were, worried about not being able to access money that was on in in their accounts and part of the spreads are people know that on some levels of the market i can offer 50 percent on players that i think are actually quite good bets because there's enough people who are desperate enough to cash out or there's not enough liquidity to go around the whole market but that won't always be the case this is probably this month only so context i think is important the spreads will change, football will be in full flow. As we've seen tonight, we've already seen some players rise off the back mm. of performances. It's off the back of IS being turned off for two months and there being a global pandemic. FI now more than ever rewards patience, mm. probably even more so than football knowledge.
0: I'm going to ask one adjacent question to both of you, because I know especially, Sam, you're very keen on the economical side of things, both from FI perspective, but from a worldly perspective. We're kind of predicted to go into this deep recession at some point soon that you mentioned earlier, Sigmund. Is that going to impact FI?
1: I kind of think it probably would have already if it was going to. I think gambling is quite counter-cyclical economically. People tend to sadly gamble more during recessions. It's sort of a way out of the wider problems. So I don't think the gambling market as a whole will drop that much now that sports come back. And I also think FI is such a small portion of the market that if it continues to do the right things, even if some people find themselves in an economic position where they're no longer able to invest or have to take some money out, that money is going to be replaced by other people discovering it. You know, we are going to go into a recession. We don't yet know how long it's going to be. It will depend a bit on what happens with the pandemic over the next few months. But I'm not hugely worried given the resilience it's shown over the last couple of months.
2: I've been blown away by the growth of FH during this period. And you kind of go, well, if you can survive, no football, people being furloughed, huge unemployment, and it being in a growing market, it's kind of hard now to think about what would it take to derail FI? And I can't really come up with an answer. <laughs> I'm very optimistic about the platform. Maybe
0: David Louise somehow?
2: <laughs> He'd find a way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll move
0: on to the next question before I get angry mentioning that man's name. FI Lambings. Now that tiered PB has been ruled out, how would you take this to a billion pound market cap? Sam, I think we had a little debate about this on Twitter. One of the few things that we disagree about in terms of tiered PB versus not tiered PB. Give me your side of this. Why are you strongly in favor for tiered?
1: I'm strongly in favor of it because of what I was just talking about. (laughs) Ultimately, you need to create value for more players for this market to grow beyond a certain size. You know, look, I own Messi's shares. I'm delighted to see him win constantly right now. It, it suits me. I've got my port very well set up for the current sort of system, but there's just a limit in the, the amount of money that can go into a small group of players. You need to create enough certainty around a wider pool that people will invest in players who at the moment might only win one gold a season or, you know, a couple of days a season. They come close quite a bit. They're just, almost attractive enough to buy, but the risk of them actually not doing anything for six months is too great. So tiered PB would be just be a way of spreading the wealth around so that you create value in more players and grow a market. Because I think if you focus it all on the top 10, 20, 30 players, plus the most exciting youth who might get into that top 20 or 30, you just squeeze the market and make it too small to truly expand. However, having said that, they've made it clear they don't want to do tiered PB. The question was, sort of how then do you get to this billion market cap or times 10, which is what Adam Cole was talking about? And I think there's kind of three stages for me that I would be doing. I mean, the first is one they're already doing, which is the tech. I think, you know, the NASDAQ integration, the full order books. I think we're in this slightly weird halfway house at the moment of mm. one half of the order books in. I can see why they did it that way, but we'll need both sides for it to be truly revolutionary plus the market depth and all of those things that NASDAQ will give them. So I think that's kind of the first thing, and that's really important. Again, as Adam Cole was saying, that will give confidence to different types of traders to come onto the platform as well, which will, again, increase liquidity. The second thing is I do think you need to change the div structure in some way. If they're not going to do tiered PB, they need to look at something like a penny for any score over 200 and 2P two for any score over 250, on mm. any share you own something like that, that's affordable. But it would, again, it would just create enough certainty around players to give people the confidence to buy them.
0: Would that be over 30 days or for three years?
1: Personally, I'd do it for three years. I don't <laughs> think it's ridiculously expensive compared to some of the other things they could do. But even if it was for six months or three months, I think 30 days wouldn't be enough. But you just need to create something that gives people the confidence to buy mm. white people players. And then the third thing I do, you have to do the second thing in order to do the third thing. They're very linked is then I would put a lot more players on that. I'd throw thousands and thousands more players in
0: the market. I agree. I think IPO is definitely key, especially in this kind of ME market where FI don't have the liability anymore. We think they don't have it, as they said, they're not part of the market yet or other subsidiaries or companies adjacent to FI might be involved, whatever. I don't know. The thing about tiers, which doesn't scare me, but it doesn't sit right with me, is that the current PB matrix more often than not gets things right in terms of who is top. But I think if you reward players for consistently, you know, we've got the cross argument, we've got the passes argument, and whilst those don't often hit peak scores, if players can put in average performances and come second or third consistently, I don't think that's a particularly uh, particularly good look for the product. And also, if you did do tiered rather than a kind of dividend increase, then you go into a situation where that kind of carrot that's dangled is smaller. It probably means that trading is slightly less so because people are happier to sit on their holes than come in the top three positions. And more so, it doesn't devalue bets, but if you did an increase of, say, 50% on the first position and then you had second and third at some like X and Y price, then those guys that are at the top might actually become devalued comparatively to other players, if that makes sense? I wouldn't
1: decrease. I'd only do it as a ratchet up. I don't think you should ever decrease any. Not
0: decrease, but like if the first place is not increased as much as it would be if there wasn't second and third, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it's kind of academic because they're not going to do it. But I do think (laughs) what is important is finding ways to create value elsewhere. I just don't think IPD does it. It's just not a long enough period of time to justify the risk you're now having to take given the spreads. So there might be some specific occasions where you might see some value there, but it's not going to drive what I'm talking about.
2: Sigmund, any thoughts there? I don't know. I mean, I hate tiered PB. I think I'm delighted (laughs) that Cole knocked that out of the park because do you remember when Bruno Fernandes first won the first gold day? So I think it was the gold day plus media. I think it was the first time in ages that someone had won twenty-one p. Mm. I think it was on the platform, and the pace went nuts because the reward was sweet enough to like really incentivize trading. So for me, I think big rewards as opposed to lots of smaller ones that get filtered down. I'm not a fan of tier PB. As how do we get to a billion? I literally have no idea. If I have done such a good job creating this product and getting it to where it is. I kind of always chuckle when we see people on social media talking about, well, here's what FI should do. And like for the most part, most of us don't even know how to value players, let alone how to take a company to a billion market cap. One general area, I think, is marketing. When I talk to my friends, they've kind of vaguely heard of FI, Mm. but it's definitely not mainstream. And I think that comes from marketing. I think once you get people on the platform, if you have the sweetener to get them on, and it's made fairly simple and obvious and the onboarding process is clear. The product is so good, it's such a clever concept that you'll have people hooked. And yet for me, it's not a cult product anymore, but it's definitely still more niche than mainstream market. It's just got to get into more people's consciousness, which I think they're doing well. I just I hate the little bugs and the quirks of the platform, but I'd much rather see way more marketing than more tech, which I know a lot of people Mm. are the other way around. Like I shouldn't have to be a salesman to my friends and colleagues about FI, they should have already heard about it because it's so good.
0: Yeah, I suppose it's going to be two pronged, isn't it? There's going to be the tech that means, because I think for me, as someone who's kind of like in the line of marketing media, whatever you want to call it, this kind of like digital content kind of thing, your retention is just as important as your acquisition for me. And I know that mass marketing gets loads of people into it, people signing up and loads of people reactivating accounts, but actually retaining customers and then becoming advocates of your product and then leveraging the market effect to a bigger extent is just as important for me as acquisition. And I think retention can only be done if. A combination of, you know, the tech being right and also Sam, to some extent, what you talked about in terms of loads more players having value and actually full stop, loads more players being on the platform. Those three kind of thing combined, I think, can actually help a lot more on the retention side. And then you can go gung-ho on the kind of marketing and acquisition side because that kind of funnel becomes a lot less leaky. A lot less people start falling out of the bottom. But I think, yeah, some good conversation there. But we've got a good question here from F.I. Julio from the Discord chat. Again, quick plug for the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Guide. How do you expect the introduction of the 2% bid commission to impact the size of spreads? For example, do you think traders will factor in just the 2% or we will see bigger margin due to the psychological effect of having to pay for it and a lower amount of bids overall? This was a really interesting question, I think.
2: To start with, I think once you introduce the 2% commission, I think spreads increase a bit because naturally that 2% has got to come from somewhere. But then I think once we get sell orders, Spreads drop very quickly because we won't have so much wishful bidding, if you like. The plus side of that is, I think liquidity will, when we get sell orders, I think this place is going to absolutely boom because money is going to move around and filter down and filter around the platform so quickly because you won't have X amount of your portfolio value tied up in bids that are never going to get matched. So I think spreads increase short term when the 2% goes and then they decrease when selling orders come.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think that. The spreads at the moment, except on the few players with very tight spreads, are kind of illusory because the buy price isn't a meaningful number for most players now. It's not the actual value of that player. The actual value is somewhere in between there and the OS price. And when the sell orders come in, you'll see, and I imagine this is why they're being very careful about it, you will see a lot of prices drop in the short term, which will create uh, much lower spreads. On a large part of the market but obviously the spread will always be i'd say at least three percent because you've got to cover the two percent commission
2: what's interesting about spreads is everyone gets quite fixated on the number and what the bid price is but there's a number of players that i have been the leading bidder for since pretty much this came in and yet haven't had enough interest from sellers so even though the spread might be the number might be quite low that I'm, that is being offered it's not enough of incentive for sellers to sell, which means that number isn't what the value is because that holder values that player at it more.
1: It's somewhere in between in most cases, but that number will be found when you have both sides of the order books in place. Yeah. That will move the market much faster, as you say.
0: For me, the most interesting thing that I'm looking forward to seeing is how the liquidity on the market buy and market sell side changes with the 2% buy commission, because you'll see fewer bids being placed at kind of very close to the buy price. And you'd think that naturally, there'll be more people buying from the market. And if it's in this kind of buy only side order book system, we'll see a lot more prices go upwards far quicker. So, for example, Phil Foden went up, what, 10, 12p tonight because of scoring a goal off the bench? Now, I think you'd have a lot more market buys if you have that 2% bid commission for players generally, but especially players where there's intense FOMO. It's going to be very hard to not cancel a lot of your 2% bids and then think, oh, well, I missed 2% anyway on this player if I don't buy them, and there we go, there's FOMO. I think that's going to be really interesting. It's going to be really interesting as well when FI actually bring in third-party liquidity providers. Obviously, we won't know the ins and outs of those deals, but presumably, mostly what happens whenever a third-party liquidity provider joins like a Betfair or a or whatever, they will take like a percentage of the comms. They won't necessarily make profit on the kind of trading aspect that they do as kind of a market maker. They don't have to. They'll rely on kind of having a percentage of commissions from the overall platform, which is, I presume one of the reasons why I thought I've put in that kind of bid side commission as well, which is all a lot of interesting things. And I think the 2% will actually have more of an impact than we think, won't it?
1: I think it will have more of an effect. But I think it's only when you have the full picture in place that you'll really see. Yeah. And I think probably the thing they're probably trying to figure out is the level of volatility it will create, have on people's level of confidence. And how they're going to represent it in terms of the market. At the moment, you've got this real kind of false lack of volatility because the buy prices are staying very stable because people aren't listing. They're just choosing when to, or not listing as much. They're choosing when to try and sell on IS if they want to get rid of a player. When you have both sides in, some of the volatility that's reflected in the IS prices will be reflected in the whole market and your people's ports will move up and down more. And I suspect they're just trying to figure out how to make that look from an appearance point of view so as not to freak people out too much.
0: Hmm. Before we move on, just need to remind you guys that this podcast is sponsored by Index Gain. If you want some of the highest quality third-party data all about Football Index, then head over to indexgain.co.uk. Use the code FIG2020 for five quid off your first month. And if you go for the semi-annual plan, you get one month free, then another five quid off on top with the FIG2020 code. They've got some amazing, amazing tools coming out soon. Can't say too much about it, otherwise Bishop would kill me, but keep your eyes and ears out. They've added like amazing reports recently, such as the media buzz analysis report to Buzz Pro, which is something where you can see like loads of the media buzz scores all the way back to August 2018. So if you're a media buzz man, then have a look at that. And then for me, my personal favorite reports are looking at the overs. So looking at how many times a player has scored over a certain score, how frequently, how infrequently and all that good stuff. Because for me, scores do matter depending on how big they are and the probability of them winning again in the future. So fig 2020 for five quid off your first month or first month free and five quid off your six month membership over on indexgain.co.uk. And then this podcast is also brought to you by The Athletic. They're an amazing subscription-based sports news site delivering in-depth sports coverage featuring football reporters you know and love like David Ornstein, Sam Lee, Rafa Honigstein, etc. They're telling stories you won't find anywhere else. So for 50% off your annual subscription to the best sports writing around, go to theathletic.co.uk slash fig. It's £2.49 for your annual deal. If you go for that with the code fig, theathletic.co.uk forward slash fig. Have you guys been buying anything for more than £2.49 recently?
2: Don't think so. What was the last thing I bought? I bought some Harry Bows. They're about two quid, I think. Bloody hell expensive, aren't they, these days? I've
0: had yeah. three McDonald's since
1: they've reopened. <laughs> <laughs> a big Mac is more than that, so there
2: you go. I had
0: my first McDonald's the other day as well. It was a strange, kind of very underwhelming, wasn't it? Well, for me it was anyway.
2: You can tell a lot about a person by their McDonald's order, i found, oh, really? psychologically speaking, yeah. What do you mean? I'll tell you what, tell me your McDonald's order.
0: All right, so I'd usually go for a large mayo chicken sandwich meal yeah and then i'd also get mozzarella sticks probably two portions
2: oh that's quite a quirky side yeah and a coke yeah i'm quite happy with that i had you down as a filet of fish (laughs) so that's good to hear
1: i go for a big mac and 20 nuggets
0: so
2: solid that's what i'm talking about that's a guy you can trust right there i do sometimes go
0: for like three chicken strips as well to be fair or maybe a cheeseburger on the side as well but like rarely if i'm feeling it i don't know
2: what's your order I'd probably go quarter pounder meal, large and sometimes with a cheeky side hamburger as a little <laughs> appetizer.
0: Fair enough, fair enough. Sometimes I go for the double mayo chicken, which is you know, obviously outlandish.
1: We're all going to develop cardiology problems later in life.
0: Yeah, F-I-L-L. He's been great on the time run recently and really supportive. So shout out to him. To what extent does intuitive heuristics influence people's buying behavior on FI? And as a result, how large a role does it play in the accurate pricing of some players? Guys, please explain to me what intuitive on, heuristics Sam. is. Sam's definitely
2: up first there.
1: Heuristic is a mental shortcut that you make. So we use them all the time to make quicker decisions than we would do if we had to think through every single tiny decision that we made the more often that we do something, the more these heuristics, these simple mental shortcuts develop in our heads. So an example using FI is comparative pricing. That is a heuristic where people will say, X is this, Y is this, this player is similar, therefore their prices should be similar. That's a heuristic that I think is very common on Football Index. Or if a player gets sent off, I will always sell them. I mean, that would be a daft heuristic, but it would be An example of one where if something happens, I will always do something else. That's just a simple mental shortcut.
2: Yeah, the one that kind of, I guess, stood out for me was sort of this concept of like anchoring. So we often used to see peak price being the big, you know, the 30p of peak price, meaning they're good value, as opposed to lots of people made bad decisions before. So maybe he's not worth that price. And they've now come to that realization. I think that's been replaced recently with people confusing. So they see green in their port immediately if they buy from the matching engine. And they therefore confuse, because they anchor what they get it for versus what the buy now price is, as opposed to what the value of that player is. And so therefore, the consequence of that is I think people confuse discounts with bargains. But like you've definitely got a discount on that player if you got them for 10% less. But that doesn't mean they're mm. a bargain, because they might have been 30% overpriced anyway. But that anchoring is putting that first number of the buy now price. That's kind of what like everything gets compared to that as opposed to what you think their value of the player should be.
0: Yeah, I think there's been some real interesting you know, psychological quirks, I'd say, in terms of like people believing that a 5-10% discount is good when in actual fact they might end up holding that player, especially if sell orders come in soon or at some point in the future, lower than the price that they bought them, which obviously we know how much FI traders hate seeing that kind of red or blue, whatever you see these days on your app. And it is interesting. I think that kind of discounting feature is has featured heavily, for lack of better words, a lot since the matching engine has come in. People have seemed to be happy buying anyone as long as it's lower than the buy price. But maybe that's not the best strategy to actually use when using the matching engine.
2: It's a double-edged sword because on the one hand it can be. Admittedly, scale's are a difficult thing on matching engine for some of the time, but it's not impossible to make twenty or thirty percent on a player. And be able to sell them mm. to market when you never would have been able to make that margin on a cheaper player. Like, I think Sergio Ramos was a decent example of people made 20% on him the other night between matching engine and market selling within a week. Now, you couldn't make 20% on Sergio Ramos in a week prior to matching engine. So there's clearly some great advantages to it, but it's when it becomes a set rule. And I think what doesn't get discussed on matching engine is the opportunity cost. You have Money tied up in bids for sometimes large times, and you try and save one penny and end up not making a pound because you could have used that money elsewhere.
0: Yeah, I think it's obviously opened up loads of new opportunities. But Sergio Ramos is a perfect example, right? A lot of people would have put him in that kind of kettle of fish of, oh well, I thought I'd be able to sell him. He's quite old, and what if I can't sell him to someone else, etc. And suddenly you've got him rising that much back of a goal and a win. So. Again, the instance of spreads right now are a snapshot in time, and I think people need to remember that. Got a question here from Tom Fennell from the Discord. You've both been fairly big advocates for career dividends. Do you use this as a valuation method for every single trade? Could you discuss what other valuation methods you use, and to what degree, depending on the player type of trade?
2: So I'd say 80% of my port is normally by players who I think are undervalued relative to their price. And the way I personally work that out is first I try and work out if I hold a player for six months, a year, what percentage of yield would I be happy with from that player? Because obviously I know we make more money still on price rising than often on divs, but the divs drive the price rising. So which players do I think are going to return good divs relative to their age? So I don't care about divs for a 19-year-old because I care more about their PB scores. I care a lot about divs yield for players who are older. So I think first I try and do a rough guess on what would I be happy with and then secondly try and do an evaluation of within a range what percentage of divs do I think this player will earn. And if a player I think at 22 is going to return 10% of divs a season and a player at 32 is going to do 10% a season, and they're the same price, then it makes absolutely no sense to buy the older one. And only after I do that process, I think for me of trying to work out how many divs they'll win, what divs I'll be happy with for that age, only after that do I then do some sort of comparative pricing. Because I think if you do the comparative pricing player X to player Y to start with, you might end up comparing two overpriced players. So I think you've got to start with the player in isolation before you then compare. The other 20% of my port, I usually just try and play with trends and short-term trading just to kind of keep it fun. I should say at the moment, I'm not personally doing that because I think the last month was a unique opportunity with Matching Engine being first introduced and there being a bit of uncertainty. Whereas I think now moving forward, I'm going to be reverting back to that sort of approach. Hmm.
1: I think I've said this before, but my view on the sort of career dividends is it's important to know, to take a view on it, to try and work out what you think they are. It doesn't mean you have to trade on them. Sometimes there will be opportunities to trade on players who you actually don't think are good value in terms of their career. You will be able to make money, but you need to know what you're doing so that you don't get caught out. And that means you have to have an underlying sense of, of what the real value is. Otherwise, you could find yourself buying into a rise that you don't understand and getting sort of marooned with a player that you then can't get rid of or can only get rid of it as a big loss. So I think it's really important that everyone, if you want to be a good trader, you think about, you make some kind of estimate of what those career dividends will be because that gives some level of anchor to the price. I mean, I agree certainly when you're looking at younger players, it's much more of a stab in the dark and it's more about just being the type of player they are and where they play and you know, what their likely transfer path is. But for older players, you really want to have a pretty good idea.
0: The important thing is you don't always have to be right to make money. Like you don't have to be right about a young player to see them explode over a period of 12 months for them to never ever fulfill that kind of career dividend potential in the future.
2: Honestly, I think it's one of the biggest misconceptions and I don't know if it's a deliberate one or not that gets used as an anti-argument against career dividends. No one who talks about the importance of career dividends is ever saying you have to hold that player for their career. What you're basically saying is to be able to sell a player for maximum profit is I need the person buying that player for me to value that player more than I do. Mm. And we know because of recency bias that that typically happens. When do people have the perception of highest value? is after they've performed. Mm. So if you have a player who performs more than they should relative to their price in terms of divs, you're going to have more exit points because there's going to be more intervals where this recency bias or this bandwagon effect kicks in. So you're not saying you have to hold them for the longest time for the whole career but you're saying A, it gives you more exit points because selling is sometimes a hard part on FI and also it's just the fact that there's a percentage of players on the platform who probably will return their career in dividends under the current pricing structure so why would you not buy them because they will give you the most cap app the most price rise anyway so yes we don't know how much dividends are going to change in the future we don't know the career path of every player but You can make bets based on probability and likelihood, and it just gives you more options, and I'm convinced more profit. Because if you look historically, the players who everyone likely agrees will return their price in divs are the ones who've gone up the most in the last year or two years.
0: Yeah, definitely so. I think it is the common misconception, isn't it? Because like with players that aren't necessarily valued and people are buying off you, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily good value someone could be buying in from the greater fool standpoint, where you are selling something that is worthless onto someone else who believes they might still be worthless, but they can sell them on. And that's just basically how bubbles start.
2: But that's true in all life. Like you can make money buying and selling property on property that's overpriced if you can just get one other person to buy that more expensive house off you for more than you did. But it makes sense to buy property that are undervalued because it's easier to sell them. And that's true for everything. So it's not saying you can't make money off players who don't have high intrinsic value, but it's just easier to and more profitable Mm. to. One other thing that I think probably doesn't get mentioned, which I think is fascinating, it's less stressful. Looking at your port going, God, I wouldn't pay that for that player. I hope someone else does. Every day is kind of quite a stressful thing to think about. Whereas I can look at my port and if one of my players dips, but I'm really confident that they will return their price and dividends. I don't mind that dip or I might even buy more. But I don't do that on players that I think are massively overpriced in my port. It definitely does add a level of stress to it.
0: Mm, For sure, for sure. And I think the other thing that people need to realise is that you don't have to hold these players. If you think that they are overpriced and you're looking at them in their port, there's no need to go out on a limb and defend them relentlessly Like when you can sell them, even if it's a loss that you can sell them and move on. Sometimes I think it's like an ego thing where people feel that they need to win that bet. Do you know what I mean?
2: And this is why... Twitter is often quite a challenging thing and i actually kind of changed a bit how I use it because on one hand I understand why people don't want to discuss individual players because it can cost them money and no one ever sets out to cost anyone else money but it's very hard to talk about players you do think are good value without at some stage someone saying what about this guy and so it naturally comes up and people take it very personally. I've started doing a bit of a thread just because I'm bored some of the time (laughs) going here's the divs I think they're going to win. I don't say what price I think they should get to, because I always hate it when they go, he looks like a £4 player. Well, what does a £4 player look like? Whereas I think it's interesting to say, you know, well, here's what the range of divs I think that player will win. And most of the time when you say that, people don't often reply with how many divs they think that player will win. They just take it very personally that you have a different number than that they think that player. uh, Yeah, you're not married to any of your Mm. holds. You can buy and sell as many times as you like.
0: That's exactly it. You're not married to any of your holds. I couldn't have put it any better myself. Soccer Index has a question here, which I want to know a lot about as well. How would you recommend traders avoid the superiority trap as the market becomes more efficient, increasingly witnessing victims of this? Could someone explain this one to me?
1: The superiority trap is basically just overconfidence. Okay, It just means you have some kind of level of insight into the market. that is entirely unjustified by the actual quality of your trading. <laughs> which probably does describe quite a few of us in the market. Also, relatedly, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is the sort of belief that you are better than average, that the more likely you are to believe that you're better than average, the, the less likely you are to actually be it. And obviously, as the market does get more efficient and as more players get used to using it and understanding it, it does get harder to have an edge, although I still think it's a very young market, so it's much less difficult than on a very mature market, like most stock markets. So how do you avoid it? The best thing to do is to talk about what you're doing with other people and check your thinking. I pretty much always now, before I buy somebody, ask somebody else, do you think I'm being stupid? Unless it's a quick sell based on some event that's just happened, I will also say, I'm going to sell this person. Do you think that's too early? Because I want someone else's opinion to check my own thinking Mm. before I make that call. It's just a good way of making sure you're not missing something. And you're not being overconfident in your thinking before you spend your money.
2: You can see why it happens on Football Index because it's been such a growth period. You'd have made money if you just bought Phil Jones this time last year and held him for a year. You'd have made like 25%. And in the outside world, 25% is a good return. So you can see why we all think we're very good at FI because we're all, not all, a lot of traders are profitable.
0: Funnily enough, when me and Panda were doing our live stream today, we saw someone on the ticker because we were looking to see if anyone bought Phil Foden after his goal. Right. We are like, oh, let's have a look at the ticket. end. there was loads of bars going through, but there was a few Mbappes, a few here and there. And then we just saw 100 <laughs> Phil Jones being bought. Amazing. Which I just thought was funny.
2: I mean, it might have been me just so I could set this part <laughs> of the pod up. But yes, yeah, so you can understand why people like, then think that they know because the evidence in their bank account suggests that they do. How do we overcome this? I think the more questions, even dumb questions you ask, the better. It's the only way to learn. Like, I remember about two months into my Football Index journey, texting my friend, the only other person I knew at the time, who was on Football Index. And I couldn't believe that they paid me IPDs. But I bought the player after that match on that day. I didn't realise that like, you get them anytime on that day. And in hindsight, that was really dumb because it's quite clearly written in the rules. But, like, everyone's dumb at the start. There's nothing wrong with asking dumb questions. I think the way to overcome this sort of trap, if you like, is you can ask dumb questions... But you can't be dumb and rude. If you're that combination, then like you're always going to be in your own bubble because you're always seeing everything as an argument. You're seeing it as someone saying that you're wrong. Whereas if you can be open about what you don't know, like there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know this or I'm not sure. The problem with online is everyone is very on either end of the scale. Like It's either brilliant or terrible. And I think the only other thing is every now and again when I talk to some traders, it reminds me that there are levels to this game And there's a lot that I still don't know or haven't factored in. And that just reminds me that when these people talk and offer their opinion, it's probably best to just listen. Because the best thing about your pods, for example, when I first joined, I was like, there are clever people and knowledgeable people on Fibble Index giving their opinion and talking about their thought process out for free. And likewise, on social media, there's some people who are putting stuff out for free that can just make us all smarter and better traders. So even if I don't agree with everything they say, it's just, I guess appreciating the people that you think are good at this game, learning from them.
0: And I think that kind of wisdom of crowds notion is quite powerful, isn't it, Sam? I think you've mentioned it a couple of times on the pod before, asking other people's opinions. If you have like 30 good traders to talk to or hundreds on Twitter or Slack, wherever you talk to people, and all of them think that the bet that you're considering buying is a bad bet. I mean, contrarian trading can work, but more often than not, if you did a hundred of those, and you did 100 bets where people said that's a bad bet, then more often than not, they would be bad bets, right?
1: They're relatively representative of the community. They're the people you're trading with. Mm. they also say your buying is rubbish, then they're probably not going to buy them in the future.
2: I don't know about that, if I'm honest, because people tend to talk with their ports They do quite yeah. a lot.
1: It's like on Twitter. I think in a public forum, that's true. I think if you can find a group of traders who you get on with, who you trust, who aren't so worried about their own ports in a, small community. I think it's a bit different.
0: I think there is a lot of the talking with your port thing there. And it's actually what people do is they're quite fickle in general. People are fickle in general, but people are fickle, especially on FI. So you had when Haaland moved from Salzburg to Dortmund, he fell to 3.80 and people were saying he wasn't worth two pounds. And now he's quadrupled that price. There was people saying Rashford was overpriced at £6.50 or whatever. And now he's £8.50. So it is interesting that there is this kind of conviction from people that they have or they think they have when talking about players they don't own, because obviously they probably want to see money going into their own holds. But it is interesting, similarly hilarious to see the same people buying those players as soon as they have a good performance. So Haaland, the perfect example, as soon as he scored the hat-trick in that Bundesliga appearance, I saw the same people who were saying that he was worth two pounds at Dortmund buying him. Now, how does that happen over a period of six weeks? What is the psychology behind that, Sigmund?
2: Oh, well, I think there's nothing wrong with changing your mind. Like there's Mm. been one or two players that I've genuinely... And I'm sure it happened with Bruno massively, the best Uh, example. Bruno and Haaland are the two stories of the index this season, right? In terms of nowhere near the top 10 this time last year. Now, I don't know, both top five, I'm guessing. Haaland's in the top five. And Haaland for a long time was something that I struggled to price up because I kind of wanted to see what his media attraction was going to be, and it surprised me with how good it's been. So I don't necessarily mind people, like it's actually quite a good sign to change your mind, but it's when what we often see is people who are very confident, consistently saying what a player is worth, and then consistently buying them three pounds later. But yeah, there doesn't really seem to be any learning. They're sort of just jumping on the train. The underlying mechanism of why that player is priced now doesn't often resonate because we often see this the other one. So you like Bruno and Haaland are two good examples. One thing that the community is very fixed on is baseliners, players who will score between 150 and 200 without doing anything in a match. And yet these people are often very fixated on these players. And yet if you ever discuss their value, Cruz is a good example, I think, of being worth 30 or 50% less than he was six months ago. Perejo's a good example. Kimmich is one at the moment that the community is very divided on. Mm. And yet it's often the same people who consistently don't value Bruno or Haaland, who are then the ones really trumpeting other types of players. So I think often what happens is, I think the psychology is people end up being in camps and you're either for or against, or you're this sort of player or you're for that sort of player. And then it gets very hard to change your mind because it becomes very entrenched.
0: The other kind of thing other than looking at these baseliners is also looking at current and past dividend returns. And there is a high correlation, and I think, Sigmund, you've talked about it quite often, with past dividends being very indicative of kind of future dividend performance. But like there is this kind of notion that if you're not winning dividends right now, you are not value, which is just simply not correct.
2: Well, I think Sancho's is the perfect example of that. Mm, exactly. He was for a long time criticised for not winning dividends. And I'm guessing now, if I looked up...
0: He's in the top 10 dividend earners ever now. Forever on FI.
2: Right. And compare him to other 20-year-olds, he must be doing three to four times what we would consider other good 20-year-olds are doing. And so we have an interesting generation of players coming through now where I'd say people like Odegaard and Havertz, Foden's getting nearer that level of haven't won huge divs historically. But you'd expect in two years' time, when we're having Fig episode 364 or something, <laughs> them to be one of the highest dividend-yielding players on the platform.
0: Exactly. And I think like you've got to think in that way. If you don't want to buy Sancho and you don't want to buy someone who's maybe returning dividends right now, but maybe their ceiling price-wise is limited, like a uh, Perejo or Cruz, for example, that you mentioned, then you need to start thinking about who will the next dividend earners be and also who have the best path two dividends in the near future whether it's the likes of Foden who are starting to get more minutes or Havertz who is starting to kind of break out and be the talisman for their team. It's really important to kind of think in that way as well as thinking in the current like present because what being stuck in the present does it makes you miss out on opportunities like Haaland, like Bruno, where you're like oh well now he's moved to Dortmund he's worth x when in actual fact if you looked at kind of the 6 to 9 month picture you suddenly see someone who's yielded from a capital appreciation standpoint, and not too bad a dividend yield either, really, really well in that place. And same with Sancho, if we rewinded two years ago, if you looked at his one-month development, you might have thought, oh, well, it's over the summer. He's not moving from Dortmund this season. He's probably not worth that much right now. Well, in actual fact, the next eighteen months, he's become the best trade or buy on FI ever, really.
2: Well, and this is the thing, I think, it gets to the core of youth development and talent ID. And talent development is... You're not comparing apples with apples. Take Mason Greenwood, for example. I'm not expecting Mason Greenwood to be as good at the moment as Lewandowski. But what I am fairly interested in is how does he compare to Lewandowski when Lewandowski was his age? And of course, not everyone goes through identical career paths. But generally speaking, we know... But is
0: it right in in comparing players that might have completely different attributes, for example?
2: No. So you don't want to compare different attributes. But what I mean is like, so people... Are very quick to write. Yeah, Yeah, they're really quick to write off young players, Mm. and yet if you look at a lot of top strikers, like how was Lewandowski doing at twenty? How was Harry Kane doing at twenty? Those are probably the two best number nines at the moment.
0: But even like Aguero, right?
2: Right. Suarez wasn't scoring goals in a top five league when he was twenty, and yet these are world class, elite superstars. So you have to have patience and time, and part of that patience means their performances might plateau, and on Fi, that means they might not score a great PB score every game. That's why you're not looking at total divs for the younger players. You're looking at scores and potential and development. And that's why comparing one player with another can be tricky because they're at very different stages of their career. We've
0: got a question here from FI Ben. Can you talk us through your theory of the psychology behind players rising up until the first game and then the majority of them dropping significantly due to not winning PB in that single game? Is there a theory behind it or just impatience slash ignorance?
2: Just to provide some context to that, because I think that was following a conversation that people were having about Odegaard on Twitter. Sam probably summed it up best about how markets correct themselves. All I'll say on that is some people rise and fall off an event. Like you rise off a goal or a PB score or you fall because you got sent off or you got injured. Like something has happened that's made that price change. Whereas some players rise and fall off non-events so for example let's say Grealish didn't move to Man United in Mm. the summer if you were new to the index and bought him now you might not know how much money has been put in on him based on rumors of him going to United already Mm. so even though nothing changes if he stays at his club his price might change which is why understanding the history and context makes a difference because he might fall off a non-event which to an outsider looks confusing because they often go Mm. why is my player dropping
0: yeah, like nothing's happened to him. Nothing bad's happened to him. He just hasn't moved.
2: Yeah, and some players, they don't get judged on their PB scores to start with if they're in a different PB league. So if they're in the Championship or the Dutch league, they rise and fall based on prominence or highlights, whereas other players who are more in the spotlight are judged by different sets of criteria. So it's just good to have an idea of what players are judged for what reasons, I guess. Sam, any comments on this?
1: Yeah, and just to say again, I think... Whenever you have a big rise in a the player, they're always going to correct. I think that's what happened with Odegaard. He went up pound seventy during the COVID period where there was no football based on he's a young player with good prospects. So there was reasons for him to go up. But it's inevitable that when you have that kind of rise, some people who are buying in don't really know why they're buying into the rise. Other people are thinking, wow, he's gone pretty toppy now. So they'll just take the first opportunity that comes along to sell. And there have been a lot of people... Just waiting to see how he performed in that game. And if he didn't perform, that was the moment they were going to sell because he's had this big rise. Had he not had that big rise, it wouldn't have happened. So it's just natural that you'll always get a correction on a player when they've gone up a lot.
2: But he's a good example of what we were just saying earlier about player development. You know, if you're looking at someone at 21, what attributes and what levels do you want them to be at at that age? And if you think he is ahead of that curve, or you might not think that, but if you think he is ahead of that, the long-term you're looking at what you think is a really good long-term bet, whereas other traders, as Sam mentioned, are looking at his rise in a short period of time. Whereas if you feel that, kind of what we are saying about Man United players earlier, if you feel they were undervalued originally, the rise isn't a reason to sell. It's kind of actually the market starting to appreciate mm. what you think. So it kind of depends yeah. on... It's the market coming to you, isn't it? Yeah, and that's the thing that I've always found the hardest on FI is timing is a nightmare. Because if I'm doing a research on a player and I think he's really good, you can probably bet that someone else is doing that same research (laughs) and they're not waiting for that player to score, to buy, like some people are. It means that you can spend ages waiting for the perfect moment, whereas actually, you know what, I think it makes sense to buy players you think are good value and trust in that, that in time the market comes to you so that you're not scrambling.
0: And that's how the biggest money has been made on FI, historically. People accumulating the players that they think will explode Not only short-term, but mid-term and long-term.
2: Let's say like this. At the start of the season, if you bought every England under-25 player who was at the World Cup, that port would have outperformed 95% of people on FI. But I'm pretty sure if you look at Sancho, Trent, Marcus, Chilwell, I'm trying to think of the other, maybe Gomez, who hasn't risen as much, but he'd probably be in that category because I think he was at the World Cup. Maybe he was injured.
0: Sancho wasn't at the World Cup, was he?
2: Okay, yeah, actually Sancho wasn't.
0: (laughs) But if we did it from like this Euro squad, for example... And we looked back at it in two years. I think you'd be right, probably.
2: Yeah. Like, buy players you think are undervalued and let the market catch up. It's far more profitable, I'm convinced, than 90% of people doing short-term trading.
0: Yeah. And again, like there are going to be those who short-term trade and they make through compounding more eventually than a lot of people using this strategy. But it can be time-consuming, but it depends on what people enjoy, I guess. Got a question here from FILL again. What impact do you believe the reflection effect has on player prices, specifically ones many may hold at a loss. Does this result in many crashed prices being propped up by those willing to take on extra risk due to reflection effect or does the snowball effect negate this? So Sam, what is the reflection effect?
1: Reflection effect is another way of talking about loss aversion, which is something I've talked about a lot before on Pods with You, which is that people are much more afraid of losses than they are happy to get a gain. They will not risk a bigger loss in the same way that they would play for a game. So, one way this affects FI is that people are typically very unhappy to sell players at a loss and like to sit on them and wait for them to become profitable again mm. because they hate the idea of taking a loss, whereas they're quite happy to take a gain and sell off. So, I think you get a lot of people sitting on players waiting for something to happen hoping for a bit of luck to get them to go up when the right strategy would actually be to just accept the loss, Mm. take it and put the money where you can make some more money faster. So that's one way it affects trading, which I think the person who asked this question is probably getting it.
2: What Sam said. Yeah, that was my contribution. What Sam said.
0: (laughs) No, I agree. Because I think a lot of the questions that I get on Twitter and the Discord, wherever, is kind of like, should I stick with this player? He's at a big loss. And I'm kind of just waiting for him to do something. And it's kind of like, well, would you buy them now? And if the answer is no, then you should probably sell them. But I also think that like, you've got to ignore the kind of minus or the plus marker on your holds and just kind of figure out a way of valuing them yourselves and then kind of making a decision after.
1: To give an example of an experiment, which prove the point. Oh, you're not yeah. going
0: to do another experiment on me, are you? I'm not going
1: to do an experiment on you, don't <laughs> worry. Just to explain the concept. So there's been lots and lots and lots of studies on this, which have found this over and over again. Most people would choose a certain gain of £20 over a one-third chance of gaining £60, Mm. but they would choose a one-third chance of losing £60 over a certain loss of £20. So the way they treat whether they'll accept a loss Mm. is very different to the way they'll treat how they'll accept a gain. People Mm. will take the gain quicker because they like the idea of having that certain gain and are worried that they'll lose it if they don't take it now but they'll leave the loss because they don't want to take that certain loss. They want the chance
0: of... Not losing. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: It makes sense. And the holding on to players who you think are losing value or are going down in price, I should say, is an interesting one because it often gets promoted quite a lot online of people to ask like, why is this player going down? And it's often done with the intention of, I can't believe he's going down. That means he's such a good price. Everyone else should be buying him now. And it's often, I always think, done in a way that like, Often people aren't buying more themselves. And if anything, it's just highlighting that they're holding a depreciating asset, which probably depreciates it further. So yeah, people get very funny around holding on a loss. I guess the flip side is being too impatient that you sell at the first sign mm. and you forget why you bought it in the first place.
0: Yeah, being at a loss doesn't necessarily mean you have to sell. Sorry, we've, no. we've got to clarify that. It's like bad bets that are at a loss. You should probably sell if you can and you think that you can use the money elsewhere. Make more money, and if you think those bad bets aren't value, if that makes sense.
1: I mean, if you find yourself sitting there waiting for a miracle to happen mm. and praying for a miracle to happen because that's the only way you're going to recover your loss, you probably want to sell the player.
0: Yeah, you have got to think about things probabilistically, which a lot of people just don't do on football index. You have to don't think part. about probabilities at all, and I think it's definitely in. I don't want to call it an educational gap, but I think it's definitely a place where the community will mature in terms of probabilities. Because a lot of people will, I guess, let's look at the gimmick debate, right? You know, people are literally on both sides of the fence with this guy. But if he wins a PB with a certain score, it doesn't necessarily mean that he is suddenly good for BB or he is a value player, if that makes sense.
1: I mean, he could have won a over the last few weeks. Yeah. If, you know, certain things have gone other ways, you know, he's come second a few times. It's easy enough to imagine a scenario where he would have come first on those days. It doesn't actually mean he's better value because he's exactly the same thing. You still need to think probabilistically about
0: how often he can come first.
1: We're not short term trading. I mean, you need to think about what's that going to mean next year, probabilistically, given everything else that happens across a season.
2: Yeah, exactly. Just going back to the whole selling thing, and like you don't have to sell if you're losing money and you definitely shouldn't. One thing I think when you should never sell is when you're too emotional. If you hadn't thought about selling, five minutes before, you're probably making quite a rash decision. And so I always think it's quite good not to buy and sell when you're really emotional about something and when Mm. you're rushing. Because usually when you're rushing or panicking, it's very easy for that focus to become so narrow that you don't consider any alternatives. And that's often where I think this is an easy way, a quick way to lose money Mm. on FI.
0: For sure. Last question here from FI Economist. Sam, I look forward to you enlightening us about behavioral biases that affect FI traders. My question is, which behavioral insights should FI exploit, i.e. as nudges to optimize the platform and in particular, their user acquisition?
1: I love this question. Focusing on this sort of point about user acquisition, we've talked a bit about the sort of initial marketing to get people to come to the site in the first place. And we all think that you know, it'd be great for them to do more of that. But I think there's a key barrier is when either through word of mouth or seeing an advert on the tube or whatever, people come to the site and then they have to jump over the barrier to actually put in their credit card details or their debit card details and put some money in. Even if there's an offer that you can get your money back if you want after a week or so, there's still a moment where you have to actually put some money in to find out what the platform's about. So thinking about this question, I was thinking it would be great to have a kind of testing option where you could not with real money, but just practice a bit and trade a bit on the platform and buy some shares, see how they go up and down, but you're not actually using real money just to get you sort of hooked on the concept or even as a starter offer, say, we'll give you 50 quid of completely free shares to buy into so you can play around with the concept at no cost, which is essentially the way, and if you look at how the sort of big established gambling firms draw people in, it's through free bets or bets with third odds to get you drawn in, to get you over the line of investing the money, and then you're hooked, and then you're in. I think something at that point of decision where you need to make the decision to actually try it out, or, oh, this looks a bit complicated, I'm going to go away now. Mm. I think there's some things that I could do there.
0: I think there is friction there for sure. It's obviously also quite a novel product, and with novel products that also obviously comes a lot more scrutiny and a lot more confusion and just a lot more friction when you're trying to sign on to something. I think with FI in terms of nudging certain people to sign up to FI. So I've always thought like, why are there not more Betfair traders or former Betfair traders or people who trade on Betfair on FI? Like what is the barrier between Betfair and FI? Because you actually look at the layouts, they're quite similar, right? they are literally exactly the same. And I think if you actually professionalize the site, because at some point, if you looked at FI, if you just showed it to anyone and they didn't know it was a gambling company, a lot of people would say, oh, this is like maybe a game. So I think maybe looking at how you can break down the friction between someone who uses something that is quite like a rudimentary layout and UI and quite like basic, but looks, I guess, a bit more blocky and smarter. And I guess like, crisp than fi's interface what is actually stopping someone from betfair coming over and putting like five percent of their cash balance into fi and if you do that with a certain amount of traders then i think you know for all the good grace that adam and all the fi guys have in trying to entice you know institutional money that we mentioned on the podcast like adam was talking about like big picture things like professional traders on fi but like actually there's an actual real untapped source of money in professional gamblers and I really think that's been underappreciated by FI in how not easily they could hook them, but easily they could entice them into joining a platform where they could make more money and actually maybe have more fun.
1: They've made some mistakes in the way they talk about the product that actually scare off professional gamblers. Mm. Like I've had some conversations with professional gamblers on Twitter about it. The language they use, Like I think we talked a bit about this last time, but that ad that they put out about only 2% of people losing.
0: Oh, yeah. And the Bitcoin one, for example.
1: Those are kind of like massive red flags to a professional gambler. That can't be true in the long run. So what's the game here? So I think they've done a bit of overselling, which actually puts off that audience.
0: Well, I think that's all we've got time for. Thank you very much for joining me, gents. I appreciate it. I know it's been a slog this evening. Totally my fault. Blame Panda slightly, but also blame Bad Weather. And Eric Garcia had a bad, bad injury. So 11 minutes stoppage time in the Arsenal game. Hope he's getting better. But where can people find out more about you, Sam?
1: I am on Twitter at f, and I'm on Index
2: Gain at Sam. Awesome. And yourself, Sigmund? My Twitter's Freund underscore Mullet. <laughs> yeah, I should probably change that at some stage. And I'm on Slack, but I kind of lurk more there than talk too much on that. So mainly on Twitter.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much both for joining me at this late, late hour. Hopefully people love it as much as they did the three hour bonanza. If you guys are commuting right now, I hope you enjoy your commute. If you're not commuting, doing whatever you're doing, shout out to the non-commute crew sorry if we didn't get to answer all your questions there were so many and i didn't want to keep these guys awake all night remember football index is a gambling platform only bet what you can afford to lose and stop when the fun stops thank you very much everyone for listening